Let's um, open our Bibles this evening to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And we're continuing um, our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Acts Wednesday evenings. So in Acts chapter 4, we've seen um, the apostles arrested, Peter and John. Uh, they're examined. Um, the Sanhedrin gives them a gag order not to teach anymore concerning Jesus and his resurrection. Last week, we saw Peter and John report that to the rest of the apostles. And there's a tremendous uh, section there on prayer that we saw last time, verses uh, 32 through, excuse me, 23 through 31. And tonight, we're going to try to look at verses 32 through 37, uh, finish the chapter, Lord willing. Um, I call this kind of the pre-Ananias and Sapphira section. It's um, sort of a portrait of what the early church was doing right at the end of chapter 4. Before we start to study next week uh, what Ananias and Sapphira in the early church did wrong. So everything that goes wrong in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is sort of held in juxtaposition to what the church was doing right at the end of chapter 4. So chapter 4, what they were doing right. Chapter 5, what went wrong. You can't understand what went wrong until you understand the standard of what, what they were doing that was pleasing to God. So this particular section um, has two parts. We have the community of the saints, verses 32 through 35. And then you have the very positive example of a man named Barnabas, verses 36 and 37. So the community of the saints, verses 32 through 35. We have the characteristics of the church, Verses 32 and 33, and then the community of the church. Verses 34 and 35. So notice the characteristics of the church. Look at verse 32. It says, and the congregation of those who who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them obtained, uh, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. So the first thing you you see is a growing church. Um, The last numerical count that we had, I believe it's back in verse 4, the number of those who claim the name Jesus Christ had grown to 5,000 people. And so what you see these 5,000 people do is they're congregating and they're meeting. So the church is growing. Uh, this is important because Luke is trying to present his addressee, Theophilus, with a 
orderly account of the birth and the growth of the church. He's trying to show Theophilus that God's hand was in the whole thing so he could have confidence, you know, in the message through the church that finally got to him through Rome. So one of the ways that Luke does this, talks about the birth and the growth of the church, is he documents the church and its growth through what are called numerical uh, progress reports. And so you can sort of take this as a progress report numerically. The congregation of, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So the congregation is, a, is an assembly. So we have here a growing assembly. And how do you become a member of the congregation? You've got to fill out a card and walk an aisle. No, it says it right there, midway through verse 32. They believed. So anyone that's put their trust in Jesus for personal salvation is now inducted by the Holy Spirit into this vibrant group that's growing in uh, Jerusalem. As you know, the Bible 150 times over 150 times conditions salvation upon believing only. Some of the classics, Genesis 15:6, Abram believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Uh, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but has eternal life. Acts 16.30, the Philippian jailer, what must we do to be saved? Paul and Silas say, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now you say, well, what about the word repent? Um, Didn't Peter, back in Acts 2.38, tell them to repent? So should they repent or should they believe? And the answer to that is those are synonyms. Uh, believe means to trust. Repent means to change your mind. Meta noeo. It's a Greek word meaning meta change noeo mind. That's when, that's why when you see the word repent in the book of Acts, it's always accompanied with the word believe. So Acts 2.38, they repented, but then you go down to verse 44, and it says, and all those who believed. So there are two sides um, to the same coin. And uh, on our recent trip, um, when we were in uh, Greece and that part of the world, we had a Greek-speaking tour guide. And so um, I was teaching some of this to the folks on our bus and at that point, the Greek-speaking tour guide took the microphone, and I'm like, oh, no, what's she going to say? She, she said, everything that he just said is right. Meta noeo means to change your mind in Greek, at which point I went, phew. Because <laughs> it would have been kind of embarrassing if she said, no, that's completely and totally wrong. And what is happening here is you're seeing the development of the body of Christ. Paul, who hasn't even been converted yet, we don't we don't even know who Saul 
who would become Paul is yet until Acts 9, is going to, in his epistles, explain what's happening right here. He says later on, for by one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink to one spirit. So when you believe, you are uh, baptized, meaning identified with this new man called the church that's up to 5,000 people. So that's how you become a member of the universal church. There's a single step that God requires, which is to believe. And then you see them sharing everything. Uh, verse 32, they were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to them was his own, but they had all things in common. C- uh, communal living situation. It's the same thing that was going on in Acts 2. There in Acts 2, you've got about 3,000 saved. They start to meet together. They have all things in common. They're sharing their lives with each other, including their personal property. Um, There's some misunderstandings about this that I'll try to cover um, a little bit later in the chapter. Uh, but for now, it's this idea that they said, I don't really own anything. It belongs to the Lord. And so anybody that has a need in this flock, the members were sharing with one another. Um, one of the reasons they were sharing with each other relates to the fact that these things were connected to the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 happened on the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, you have Jews, as is documented in Acts 2, from all over the known world, showing up on a feast day, which is what their Hebrew Bible told them to do. It's just this time around, the Holy Spirit had a surprise for them. Uh, They heard the gospel for the first time, and they believed and they were brought into this new body by the Holy Spirit. And there's no Bible yet. There's no New Testament yet. And they wanted to stick around Jerusalem and learn from the apostles, who were the only ones you could really learn this new way of life from. And so most of them just had resources to be in town for a brief time. They had no intention to stick around for a long period of time. But now that they had repented and changed their minds, they wanted to stay longer. Uh, Typically, the way it worked on the day of Pentecost, as you came to Jerusalem, you did your thing, and you went right back to where you came from. But these folks wanted to stick around longer to learn this new way of life, this new truth. And if your bags are only packed for a couple of weeks, (laughs) you run out of money and you run out of resources. So those in Jerusalem that had resources started to share with those who had limited resources. And so that's sort of the context of this communal living that you see highlighted at the end of Acts 2 and at the end of Acts 4. And you look at verse 33 and you see that the apostles were 
witnessing. It says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them. So the apostles were up front, the apostles were leading, and uh, the apostles were talking about the resurrection. Uh, right there in verse 33, you'll see the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal because Paul will later write in the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So that's why when you look at these different sermons in the book of Acts that we've studied so far, there's a huge emphasis in the, the resurrection of Jesus. Peter mentions it in Acts 2.24. Peter, when he speaks again in Acts 3, mentions it in Acts chapter 3, verse 15. And this is why they were persecuted. Because the religious group that had control over the temple area and Jerusalem in general was a group called the Sadducees. And as I've said before, the Sadducees were always sad, you see. Because, and one of the reasons they were so sad, in my opinion, is they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in angels. And they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so you could see how this doctrine that the apostles are teaching concerning the bodily resurrection of Jesus was upsetting to the Sadducees. And that becomes the reason why the early church has come into persecution um, very, very early, why a gag order has been put on them not to talk anymore about the resurrection. So what do they do? They go right back out and they talk about the resurrection. So here is an example of civil disobedience. Um, an issue that we're going to talk about as we continue to progress through our study in the book of Acts, because that's starting to become a major issue for Christians in the United States. If the government says, don't go to church, uh, and if you go to church, don't sing, because you can spread a virus, um, now for the first time we're having to figure out who am I supposed to obey here? Am I supposed to obey God, who says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some? Am I supposed to obey God, who indwells the praises of his people? Or am I supposed to um, obey some unelected bureaucrat um, acting outside of legislative authority? Because all these things that happened in 2020 were not laws. They were executive orders. So they didn't go through the normal legal process a law is supposed to go through. And it was all done under the guise of this is an emergency. So now we're having to figure out who am I supposed to obey here? The government or God? And what you're seeing in the book of Acts is over and over again when there's a conflict between the two the early church decided to obey God and suffer the consequences. Uh, 
So that's how the book of Acts is now becoming very relevant to uh, North American Christians and Canadians um, in the year 2020 and beyond because now we're having to face things that we really haven't faced before. So we're having to carefully think through these issues. Verse 33, the very end of it, as the apostles are giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, it says, and abundant grace was upon them. The Greek word for grace is charis. It basically means unmerited favor. Favor coming to you that you don't deserve. And the reason they had this is their standing before God was based on believing only. We see, we saw that earlier. Back in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed. It was not based on their works. It was not based on works they did on the front end or the back end. The only thing that gave them standing was the work that Jesus did for them in their place on the cross, and he authenticated it through his bodily resurrection from the dead, and they trusted in that. Uh, it's not a works-based salvation. And so that's why the grace of God was abundant on this group of 5,000 people. So we move away from the characteristics of the early church, and then you also have here the community of the early church. Body life. What is body life in the body of Christ supposed to look like? You see three things there in verses 34 and 35. Provision, verse 34. Secondarily, the means of provision, verses 34 and 35. And then communal uh, living, verse 35. So notice, first of all, the provision. It says, for there was not a needy person among them. So every single need was met. The book of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19 says, My God will supply all of your greeds. Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. I wanted to say that, doesn't say that. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So one of the things that Ann and I noticed as we were in uh, Missouri last weekend, and by the way, that should be my last uh, trip uh, for a while um, until March or something like that. So you guys are stuck with me for a while anyway. But one of the things we noticed when we went to Missouri, um, went to stores and things like that, is we noticed how nervous everybody was. Uh, everybody was looking at the price tags in the uh, Walmart and and that kind of thing. We had never really, you know, it's, it's just something we just haven't seen for a long time. And the reason everybody's so nervous is because the value of the dollar is shrinking. You could be getting a tremendous raise and your standard of living could still be going down. Uh, because the purchasing power of the dollar through inflation, you know, too much money chasing too few goods 
causes the purchasing power to shrink. And so we're living in this sort of economic environment where people are facing this. And it's in that environment we need to stand on the promises of God, that God will provide for your needs. He doesn't really say how, but he says he will. Um, You see this in Exodus 16, where for 40 years, uh, God provided on the dot every single day. The only exception was the Sabbath, or they weren't supposed to work. But he provided for them with manna from heaven every single day. And that's the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt, where at least it was secure, although they were slaves. At least they know where the next meal was coming from. Now they're in the Sinai Peninsula, having crossed the Red Sea, where they're having to totally look to God for provision. And God provided for them with manna from heaven every single day. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what that's based on for 40 years. And it was like clockwork. Every day it was there. And the manna kept coming for 40 years until they entered the promised land. And the, at that point they no longer needed the manna because they were in the land of milk and honey. That's Exodus 16. First Kings 17, 2 through 6, God provided for the prophet Elijah with ravens. You see, you really don't know how your provision is going to come. Is it going to come through my retirement plan? Is it going to come through my job? Maybe. Uh, but what you'll discover is God is very creative. He's not bound to provide for you a set way. He just says, I'm going to do it. You see that in 1 Kings 17, 2 through 6. Psalm 37, 25, David says, I was young and now I am old. And here's one thing I've never seen. I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed, children, begging for bread. And then there's Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Uh, where Jesus says, you know, consider the birds of the air, consider the lilies of the field. Does God not abundantly clothe and provide for them? And you're worth much more than they. So what are you so uptight about money for? Um, so these are just promises that we're going to need to dial into as we live, as we're living in this, uh, these kind of tight economic circumstances. So every single need in the early church was met. And it says, verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them. And then you have the means of the provision. For all those who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. So those that had means liquidated their assets to help people that were there out of town on the day of Pentecost so that they could stay and learn apostolic truth. And that's how needs were met in the early church. And you'll notice where the money went. It was laid at the apostles' feet. 
Now, I've, I've seen churches do this kind of thing. Um, all your giving has to go through the local church. You know, you can't just uh, give to someone on your own. You need to give only to the church, and then the church will distribute the funds. And they quote this verse here, you know, look, uh, everybody gave their resources to the apostles. Well, the problem is, with that line of thinking, the apostles are all dead, right? We don't have apostles today. I've run into people that tell me they're apostles. And I usually say, wow, you look good for your age. Because you ought to be about 2,000 years old by now. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the apostolic ministry was a foundational ministry. I mean, the foundation of a building is a big deal. But you only lay a foundation one time. Ephesians 2.20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, yes, funds went through the apostles. But people today in the church age, 2,000 years later, can't use this verse. You know, elders and pastors can't use this verse and say, you know, all your money that you're going to give to benevolence has to come through the local church. That's that's uh, taking on yourself an apostolic mantle. Um that doesn't belong to anybody today. God is not relaying the foundation of the church. What he's he's been doing the last 2,000 years is building on the structure. As many people have come to saving faith in Christ, and I would argue that right now today, God is not laying the foundation of the church again. He's putting on the roof. Because it looks to me as if the building is almost complete. Because one of these days, in God's providence, the building will be complete. The very last sinner that's ordained to come to Christ in the church age will be reached. The body of Christ will be made complete, and the church will be translated um, to heaven. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum has a comment here on what is happening. He says, wealthier believers sold their possessions whether they were land holdings or houses, and all of this money was laid at the apostles' feet. This was a clear recognition of apostolic authority. Nowadays, believers do not lay their financial possessions before the feet of others because there are no apostles anymore. The apostles had a unique authority, and in recognition of this, the saints brought them whatever they uh, made from selling their possessions. The Greek tense allows for the translation to read selling. They brought from time to time as it was occasioned by reason of need. In other words, the believers did not lay necessarily their entire prophets at the apostles' feet all at once. They would sometimes do it bit by bit as needs arose. So it's not like the apostles are saying, all right, sell your house and give me all the money. Um, what was happening is, is people felt compelled by the Spirit when they saw a need arise, and they would liquidate their holdings, bring them th- those proceeds to the apostles on a piecemeal basis, 
not a one-time basis. And then the apostles would distribute funds to those um, who had need. By the way, I'm completely in favor of uh, providing for your local church, obviously. Um, I think when you give, the first place you should think about is the place you're getting fed, which is your local church. But a local church doesn't have the right to exert authority over people and say, thus saith the Lord, you know, bring, bring your money to us first. The apostles could do that because they were apostles. And we don't have apostles today. So you have the means of, you have the provision, then you have the means of the provision, and then you have this statement here again on this communal, uh, economic living that's going on here. It says at the end of verse 35, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, we're living in this um, time period where all of our kids and grandkids are being brainwashed into Marxism or social justice type of thinking. And you have like the rise of Bernie Sanders today where all of these college kids go out and they vote for someone that's a flagrant uh, socialist or in some cases a communist. And um, everybody thinks communism is, is great. And after all, communism is practiced in the Bible, right? It's right there in verse 35. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has some helpful remarks here on this, why what is happening here is not Marxism. Some have tried to base a doctrine of communism using this passage, but this was simply charity built on the teaching of Yeshua. It was not communism for five reasons. And you should probably write these down because your kids and your grandkids are being pulled into this mindset. First, according to Acts 5.4, this giving was a voluntary act of the believers in Jerusalem. When communism takes over and they distribute the wealth, it's not optional, right? Uh, April 15th, tax day is not optional, right? This was optional. This was people doing what God had put on their hearts, Second, as was pointed out, the Greek tense of verse 34 indicates that varying portions were sold according to the conscience of individuals. It was not a one-time act. Third, the action was largely based upon a misconception concerning the second coming. Jewish believers felt strongly that Yeshua would return in their lifetime, although clearly he indicated that this would not happen. In fact, Yeshua prophesied in John 21, verses 18 and 19, that Peter would die before his coming. Now, that point that he makes there, I don't know if I'm totally in agreement with it. I, I do think that they felt Jesus could come back at any moment. Fourth, the practice was limited to the congregation of Jerusalem. It did not spread to the other churches. Fifth, and I found this point very interesting, it proved to be a mistake because it caused the church of Jerusalem to become poverty-stricken. Did God use it? Yes, he did. 
Did God command it? No, he didn't. After everything had been sold and distributed, there was nothing left in the common pot. The poverty of the congregation caused Jewish believers to fall in need from Gentile churches that did not follow this procedure of having all things in common. So Paul, as all the way as you go through the New Testament, is collecting um, an offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. They're suffering economically. Why were they suffering economically in Jerusalem? Well, one reason, there was a famine in Jerusalem. Acts 11 talks about it. But another reason is they drifted into this sort of economic system where God never specifically said, do this. And that could be the reason why the Jerusalem church was so needy. So Fruchtenbaum says, so there is no basis in this passage for developing the doctrine of communism. A very important principle of biblical interpretation is to distinguish between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Descriptive just tells you what they did. Prescriptive is, thus saith the Lord, you should do this or that. Historical accounts are descriptive. Simply reporting what has occurred, but there's no command to forward the practice. Only when a specific command is given does it become prescriptive and an imperative to follow. Now, I'm not saying read this and throw it out. (laughs) You can learn a lot here about generosity and how my money is really not mine. It belongs to the Lord And sometimes God wants to use my resources to meet the need of somebody else. Uh, You can learn a lot here about having respect and authority for the local church. But you can't go into this as a lot of people do. And, and, you know, there's this Acts 29 movement, which is always confusing because there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So they want the book of Acts to continue into chapter 29 and they uh, usually very young people, and they want to go back to this exact kind of arrangement. Um, there, there's nothing in the Word of God that says we're, we have to do this. It's just explaining what transpired. And if you want to go to the book of Acts, uh, back into the book of Acts, you got to go back into chapter 27 also, and you got to get stuck out in the ocean too. And we were on our cruise going through that exact area, and I thought to myself, thank God we're not in Acts 27, because we would be stuck out in the middle of the ocean. And you got to get bitten by snakes also on Malta. So you see how crazy we can get with demanding that the church today follow this identical practice. I mean, it, it worked for them. In Jerusalem, it was good for them, but it's not some kind of mandatory, you know, binding thing on the church as a whole. You can certainly learn a lot of wonderful principles here, but you can't use descriptive literature in a uh, prescriptive way. So that's the basic answer to the youth of today that want to develop communism either in the church or in the United States from a passage like that. But this is, at the same time, a wonderful description of the community of the saints. And then from there you go into verses uh, 36 and 37, 
where you now have the positive example of Barnabas. We have Barnabas' example, verse 36, and Barnabas' work, verse 37. Notice his positive example. First of all, notice his name. It says, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. So Barnabas' name in Hebrew is Joseph. His Aramaic name is Barnabas. So you'll notice we've got a Hebrew name and an Aramaic name. And as you keep reading the New Testament, you'll find that people didn't just speak Hebrew, they didn't just speak Aramaic, they spoke another language called Greek. You know, Koine Greek is the language that the New Testament was recorded in. And if that weren't enough, they probably knew some Latin because Rome had come to power in the land of Israel beginning in about 63 B.C. And Latin was what's called the lingua franca, the common language of Rome. So if you were alive in biblical times, you probably spoke Four languages, Greek, Hebrew, um, Aramaic, and Latin. And over the crucified Jesus, when he was mocked in the Gospels, called King of the Jews, as you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they record the sign that was hanging over Christ's head, by way of mockery as he was being crucified. You'll find that one gospel writer says one sign was written in Greek. Another gospel writer says another sign was written in Hebrew. Another gospel writer says another sign was written in Aramaic. Another gospel writer says another sign was written in Latin. So that's not a contradiction. There were probably four signs perhaps or king of the Jews and underneath uh, that different translations and so right up to the crucifixion of Jesus you see these four languages so his Hebrew name is Joseph his Aramaic name is Barnabas in Aramaic Barnabas means son of encouragement son of exhortation So Barnabas got this name because he was the type of person that came alongside people and encouraged them. He exhorted them. Uh, In fact, when you talk about spiritual gifts, body life, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. And we're to use those gifts in the context of fellow Christians. One of those spiritual gifts is the gift of exhortation which is what Barnabas' name is named after. Romans 12 and verse 8, it says, He who exhorts um, in his exhorting. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so it's describing how all of the different gifts of the Holy Spirit are to be used. 
And one of those gifts of the Holy Spirit is exhortation. It's the ability to exhort, encourage others in the body of Christ. And if you wanted to go home this evening and study spiritual gifts, there's an easy way to do that. You just remember the mnemonic device 121244. That stands for Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. If you were to go home tonight and read those four chapters, you would have all of the New Testament data, which tells you what the different kinds of spiritual gifts are and how we need that gift of encouragement in the body of Christ. We need that used because Satan um, wears us down. And when you're around people with the gift of encouragement or exhortation, it's kind of like after you talk with them, you feel better than when than before before you started talking to them. Uh, unfortunately, not everybody is like that. <laughs> Some people are kind of like uh, I don't know emotional leeches, where they get inside of you and just suck everything out, you know, and you leave the conversation just fatigued. I'm sorry to be so crass about it, but um, just tired, like, oh, I wish I'd never picked up the phone or read that email. But there are people that have the gift of exhortation where you walk away from them and you feel better about things than before you you um, started talking to them. I'm not trying to get into politics, but I do remember uh, Ronald Reagan. I remember watching him speak, and every time I saw him speak, I mean, the whole country could be falling apart, but you, you listen to him speak, and you feel better about things <laughs> after listening to him speak than before. Um, that's kind of what the gift of exhortation is. Uh, I think in my life, Pastor Jim uh, has been used very significantly um, in this regard just by way of exhortation and encouragement. And uh, Barnabas was so effective at this, they actually gave him this Aramaic name, <clears throat> Son of Encouragement. You'll notice that the tribe of Barnabas is given. He's from the tribe of Levi. And here we are with all of this stuff going on in Israel. And the world turning on Israel. Evangelicalism, to some extent, turning on Israel. Uh, I saw one guy, I'm going to mention this on our Pastor's Point of View show this Friday, but... One guy who's supposedly a conservative says that the star of David, Israel's star, is really satanic. You know, it's uh, it's from the pentagram and and all this stuff. Um, and what people are saying is the Jews in the land right now are really not true Jews. They're they're usurpers. Um, that's an old theory. It's called the Khazar theory, if you're interested in that. But I'm looking online, and I'm seeing more and, pe- more and more people saying stuff like that. And after all, Israel is a satanic. Look at the look at the star. You know, it comes from the satanic, you know, pentagram and all of this kind of stuff. And one of the things they're saying is the tribes were all scattered. 
I mean, everybody knows the tribes were scattered in uh, 722 B.C., right, by the Assyrians. So there's no Levites left. I mean, if you think people over there could be actual Levites or or any of the other tribes, you're crazy because we all know they were scattered. Well, (laughs) if, if the tribal identities were lost in 722 B.C., how come everybody knew that Barnabas was a Levite? Um, how is it in the book of Revelation you've got 144,000 evangelists that come from the 12 tribes? I mean, maybe they're lost to man. They're not lost to God. God God hasn't lost the tribes. Oh, my goodness, the tribes are scattered. And uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, verse 7, says the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. And then there's a woman named Anna who's waiting for Jesus in the temple. And her tribal identity is given. She's from the tribe of Asher. So at Chafer Seminary, we did have a presentation on this. The fellow's last name was Greenspan, or is Greenspan. Can't remember his first name, but he's a, a genetic, a PhD, genetic authority, and he gave us um, a lecture on why the Jews in the land of Israel today are really Jews, and their tribal identity with modern day genetic understanding can all be ascertained. And you can find that if you're interested um, on the Dean Bible Ministries website, where the Various Chafer conferences are archived. And that's important to understand because of this propaganda, anti-Israel mindset that we've been pushed into now because of what's happened over there since October 7th. You see all this anti-Semitism rising to the surface. And one of the things people are saying is, well, they're not, those are not really Jews over there. There's no Levites over there. And we all know the Star of David is a ripoff from Satan's pentagram. Uh, if you want to know where the Star of David came from, by the way, it comes from Numbers 24, verse 17, where the coming of Jesus through Jacob, who's Jacob? Israel is analogized to a star. That's where the Star of David comes from. It doesn't come from some sort of satanic you know, uh, uh, Illuminati uh, mindset, trying to pretend the Jews over there are Jews when they aren't there and aren't really Jews. That's just uh, idiotic, inane, stupid, waste of your time propaganda. Don't waste your time with that kind of stuff. Uh, just stick with the pages of God's Word, and you'll be just fine. Amen. And then you see Barnabas' citizenship given. It says, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. So Cyprian means he was from the island of Cyprus. And there's where the island of Cyprus is, right off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. I, I was just there. I looked for Barnabas, I couldn't find him, but 
There's a lot of neat things going on in Cyprus. In fact, that's the general area where we got word that we weren't going into Israel because of the uh, war and the political situation there. So there's Cyprus there in the west. Um, it's a real island. Paul, on his first missionary journey, once he gets outside of the borders of Israel and he evangelizes, is going to go uh, from coast to coast, um, uh, beginning top to bottom of the island in his evangelism. And you'll see that in Acts 13. And this is where uh, Barnabas was from. He was from uh, Cyprus. Some other fast information about Barnabas, if I can give this to you. It says additional facts about Barnabas can be gleaned from other passages of Scripture. His name appears 23 times in the book of Acts. This is the first time he is mentioned. Furthermore, he is mentioned five times elsewhere in the New Testament. He was the cousin of John Mark, who was the author of the Gospel of Mark. He was the man who persuaded the church of Jerusalem to receive Paul when Paul returned to Jerusalem from Damascus, claiming to have become a believer. Later, Barnabas was sent by the church of Jerusalem to investigate Gentile salvations in Antioch. He was full of the Holy Spirit, which means he was a man controlled by the Spirit. He brought Paul from Tarsus to Antioch to begin his ministry there. According to Acts 14.12, he was a man of commanding presence as he was taken by the people of Lystra to be the god of Jupiter or Zeus. That must be kind of flattering when people mistake you for Zeus. Finally, he also had the gift of apostleship um, and was of that second category of apostles like Paul or James, the half-brother of Jesus. The only prerequisite for this latter category of apostleship is that they had seen the resurrected Messiah. So he wasn't part of the original 12, but he had seen the resurrected Messiah. Apparently Barnabas was among the 500 that saw Yeshua or Jesus after his resurrection. And then we conclude here with Barnabas's work. Verse 37, he owned a tract of land. He sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he was a property owner. Uh Uh-oh, we have a problem. Levites aren't supposed to own property. I guess the Bible is filled with contradictions. I guess we can close it and go home. The Bible's false. Because after all, it does say, Numbers 18.20, Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, nor any portion among them. Numbers 18.23, Levites, Barnabas being one, shall have no inheritance. Deuteronomy 10.9, Levi does not have a portion of inheritance with his brothers. And here's Barnabas as a property owner. Well, um, we get an escape hatch when we learn that Barnabas was from where? Cyprus, outside the borders of Israel. 
Dr. Toussaint in the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, whereas the Levites were not told to hold land in Israel, they could own land elsewhere. Apparently Barnabas, being from the island of Cyprus, owned land there. It was also possible that his wife owned land in Israel and they together sold it. So rather than just saying, oh, the Bible's wrong, it contradicts itself, there's easy resolutions when you understand that he, yes, he was a Levite, but he was from Cyprus and it was okay to own land outside of Israel's borders. So what does he do? He, he, he sells this field. And that's good. Because that's what everybody else was doing with their money to help the needy in Jerusalem. And it was within his rights to do that. He was a man of encouragement. He was a man of generosity. The Holy Spirit convicted him to sell his property and give it away to out-of-towners who were in need. And he did the right thing. He went through the right procedure. He brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And we've talked about how that's how they were doing it then. So he's doing everything absolutely right. He owns a field. He sells a field. He makes a donation. And then the chapter ends. Why does it end on this high note? Because it wants you to compare the positive example to the negative example that's coming in chapter 5 where two people... Ananias and Sapphira didn't do it right. They misrepresented their generosity. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And they were, as we'll see next time, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, slain in the Holy Spirit. What you have to understand is a newborn... When it gets a virus, the newborn is vulnerable. I mean, if I get a virus, I've already got an immune system to fight it off. A newborn doesn't. That's why when a newborn gets sick, it's kind of a frightening, you know, scary thing. That's what the early church was like. It's newborn. And any virus in the church could destroy it. And that's why God does what he does when sin comes into this body in Acts chapter 5. And so that's what we're going to study next time. You might want to read verses 1 through 11 next time and think of the negative example that's used there in light of the positive example at the end of Acts chapter 4. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Acts chapter 4, everything that it teaches us. Um, Help us to take uh, eternal principles away from this that we can apply to our lives, even though we understand that this was the apostolic age. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. So if you got to take off...